Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 30. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again. And prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Sorrow, suffering. Separation. We know the Bible is true when it says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus finds time to pray in verse 36. At the beginning of the chapter, you'll remember that Jesus made several prophecies. At the beginning of the chapter, we learned that he would be betrayed by one and deserted by all. Now he prays, and in this passage, we're invited, by the way, to learn some lessons about dependent prayer. And so we find our king in sorrow. We go right to the text. Look what it says in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here. While I pray over there, Jesus and the disciples, you'll remember, were in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. They are exiting the city. They go down the slope. They come to the Kidron. They cross the brook. They're at the base of the knoll. There is the, the western slopes, uh, is, the, is the Mount of Olives. And in all likelihood, Jesus knew the family or the unnamed disciple who owned the garden throughout the New Testament. We see Jesus interacting with people, whether it's the person who is not named in the upper room, the person who, who's not named in this garden. And we know that it's a garden from John 18, 1, where it says, he came to the garden which he and his disciples entered. Because it was a garden, it probably had a high wall. It often had a gate, and that would have offered some measure of 
seclusion and privacy. It appears that Jesus orders eight of the disciples to sit at the gate. While Jesus goes deeper into the garden, the name Gethsemane is an interesting word in and of itself. It it translates to the olive press or the oil press. This is the place where the olives would have been crushed to release the precious fluid to give us the oil that would be necessary for food and for light. This is the place where Jesus is going to be crushed. And it's interesting to me because we all come to places in our lives where we're crushed, where we're called upon to submit to the Lord's will for our lives. There are times of testing and there's times of temptation. There's times of heartache. There's times of headache. And during those times, it's usually a time where there is a great weight and a heaviness. It's a time of crushing. Whether you're dealing with a relative who's about to die, or a husband who's about to leave, or a job that's about to end. These are times of painful crushing and Jesus is going to pray during this time of painful crushing. He's going to look to his heavenly father for strength and support. And so it becomes a type and a picture for us right from the start. How will we deal with those times of sorrow? How will we confront the times of crushing? And the invitation is given right from the start to embrace not just a moment, but a lifestyle of dependent prayer. You'll note in verse 37, it says, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, The two sons of Zebedee, of course, are James and John. He begins to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Right away, we learn that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John deeper into the garden. Remember, eight of the the disciples have been left at the gate. Three follow him and they go deeper into the garden. And I believe Jesus really wants their companionship. He really wants their prayer and support. He takes them with him. But I also believe that the disciples needed to see what it's going to mean to live a life of dependent prayer. You see, there's a reason why this is recorded in your gospel. The disciples are going to need to learn how to deal with crushing sorrow. In the next verse, Jesus says, stay here. Watch with me. The idea is learn the secret of empowering prayer in the face of overwhelming circumstances. Often prayer isn't the first thing we do. It's the last thing we do. And so... We're invited to depend upon our Heavenly Father. You know, we're grateful for family and friends who pray for us. 
Clearly, the Bible says that God expects us to bear one another's burdens. We divide the sorrow in order to share the joy. But there are times, John MacArthur writes, when only direct, intimate communication or communion with the Lord in intense prayer can provide the strength to meet that desperate need, unquote. Have you considered that now might be the time to cultivate the discipline of prayer in your own life. Because whether or not you're experiencing sorrow or suffering or separation, the time will come and it is the discipline that is going to take you through these most difficult times. Jesus is facing a struggle of cosmic proportions. I don't even for a moment pretend to understand All that the text is telling us. But even in that moment of mystery and difficulty, I'm going to try to offer at least some insight. When it says, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed, the sinless son of God is going to be made to drink a sin-filled cup full of the combined transgressions of mankind in every age. And so that expression, deeply distressed, even though you may not see it on the surface, given the English translation, it contains an element of surprise. The concept is almost of being overwhelmed by sorrow. C.S. Lewis talks about it when when he talks about being surprised by grief. Or overcome with joy. Sometimes an emotion will sneak up on you. And all of a sudden you had no idea that it was going to have such a profound effect on you. The King James Version reads, heavy. He began to be heavy. The idea is a crushing weight, meaning depression. It is a weight of emotion that is so great that it seems to be unbearable. There was one (laughs) artist in the 80s who sang a song where he said, I've known the kind of pain where you can't catch your breath. He says, if this is life, please bring me death. Sometimes you might have experienced that overwhelming, that surprising, crushing moment when you discover that your mother has died or your father has died or your God forbid your child has died. There's this overwhelming, crushing emotion that sneaks up on you and overwhelms you. Jesus sees the cross, not just simply in its pain, not just simply in its horror, not just simply in its terror. Jesus is going to be given a glimpse of hell. He is going to stare into the stark wickedness of sin. In verse 38, then he said to them, obviously he's speaking to Peter, James, and John. This is what comes out of his mouth. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. It suggests a sorrow so deep that it almost kills. Some have suggested that it might have killed, but God in 
the angels are going to preserve Jesus because Jesus still has a rendezvous with the cross. Luke's gospel is going to talk about this crushing emotional weight that is so profound and physiologically damaging that Jesus is going to sweat great drops of blood. Kent Hughes writes, quote, This is difficult for us to fathom. But it was sorrow that threatened life itself. Impossible, we may think. That's because we're not as holy as he. Nor can we imagine the terrors that he saw in the cup. We are called to believe God's word that Jesus came close to death as the horror overwhelmed him, unquote. At the end of verse 38, it says, stay here. Watch with me. Stay awake. Stay right now. Jesus is saying, pray with me now. Don't you understand? And I'm going to suggest to you nothing less than the death of Jesus on Calvary's cross is going to save not just the best person in the world, but the worst person in the world. And so we see the king in sorrow And we're going to see the king in supplication. Look what it says in verse 39. He went a little further. We might say farther. Fell on his face and prayed saying, Oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The prayer is going to be mentioned not once or twice, but three times in the text. We might think of this prayer as the real Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer of submission. It's a prayer of dependence. It's a prayer of humility. Look what it says. He went a little farther and he fell on his face. That's the position of humility. Independence. This isn't standing up with your hand raised to heaven. This is with your body prostrate, your face pressed against the ground. Jesus is going to go a stone's throw deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane. And so imagine you're there. There is a gate. The eight disciples are there at the gate. They've walked a little further into the garden. Jesus is going to go about a stone's throw pace, even from the other three apostles. And note his words, my father. Jesus is is saying, oh my father. He claims that the Jewish God is his Father And the Jews of Jesus' day were willing to concede that God was the creator and therefore the father of the Jewish people. But Jesus is suggesting an even deeper intimacy. And so we talk about dependence and humility and then intimacy. Jesus consistently referred to God as father. But if you look carefully at the New Testament... It's only here, in this instance, in this verse, and later in verse 42, where Jesus doesn't just simply say, Father. He says, My Father. For Jesus to address God in this fashion would have been seen as 
blasphemous by the religious leaders. In John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is going to become so very, very important. We don't know everything about everything, but we do know this, that Jesus does claim to be equal with God. He is a human being who is fully human, and he is God in the truest sense of the word. The cup is a metaphor for his painful death. Three times Jesus is going to pray, let this cup pass from me. Might there be another way to save the people from their sin? Can't people possibly be saved some other way? Isn't it possible that people can rise to the occasion? Can't they just simply be good? Can't we simply educate people to live noble and sacrificial lives? Can't we just send them to church? Can't we have a religious ritual? Can't we raise our children in a sinless environment? How about if we just keep the law of Moses, exercise the golden rule, live in sincerity, fund some great nonprofit agency, do some measure of good for the most amount of people. Isn't there some other option? Jesus knows that people are sinners. Jesus knows that information or knowledge won't cleanse sin. Sin requires a sacrifice. Religion can't save you. Church can't save you. Being raised in a godly home can't save you. Let's just for purposes of discussion say right now, right at this very moment, right at this very moment, you promised, you made a promise and you made every intention to keep your promise for the rest of your life that you were going to be good, that you were going to be better than you've ever been. And let's just say for purposes of discussion that you managed to keep your promise. You would still die in your sin. Because it only takes one sin to disqualify you from heaven forever. The cup is filled with sin. Jesus saw all the sin committed in every age. At the very bottom of the cup was the sin of Adam and Eve. And the murder of Abel by Cain, every foul sin committed by everyone prior to Noah's flood, in that cup were the combined crimes of Hitler and Stalin and a thousand other mass murderers from history past and present and future. The cup contained the betrayal of Judas. It contained the denial of Peter. The cup contained the immorality of the woman at the well, the pride of the rich young ruler, the sexual sin of the woman taken in adultery in John 8. And then Jesus saw my sin in that cup. 
And then Jesus saw your sin in that cup. And he staggered. And he swooned. He gazed into the cup, seeing all of it. And he became violently ill. Not one sin escaped his notice. The cup was filled with every adultery, every jealousy, every hatred, all covetousness, all pride. And we can't even begin to comprehend the content of the cup, let alone the revulsion that it generates in his pure and perfect heart. If that weren't enough, the cup didn't simply contain the sin of humanity. It contained something else, something that we might want to ignore, but it also contains the wrath of God. There in that cup is the perfect anger of God towards sin and the punishment of God for sin. This is the righteous indignation of a perfect God, a holy God, a just God. This is the perfect punishment for every sin, for everyone. And Jesus understands fully what it means to be the sin bearer, the receptacle of absolute judgment and the critic and the skeptic will say that's not even possible. But I'm going to point something out to you. The skeptic and the critic might believe that the universe was compressed into something so tiny that it wouldn't even be seen on a subatomic level and that it could explode and create all of reality as you see it and understand it. They're willing to believe that all existence came from a singular point of entry, but they can't believe that God can compress the sum and the substance of your rebellion and disobedience and that judgment into a perfect person, we get just a simple clue. The tiniest clue is given to us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This circumstance isn't going to just simply result in the satisfaction for sin and the satisfaction for judgment, but it's going to create a mechanism whereby you could be accepted by God, declared forgiven and righteous. Kent Hughes writes, quote, gazing into the cup, Jesus saw hell opened for him and he staggered. He cites Isaiah 51, verses 17 and 22. In Isaiah 51, 17, we read, Awake! Awake! Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Verse 22, Thus says your Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people, See, I have taken 
out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it, unquote. Why won't they drink from the cup of God's wrath and punishment? Because Jesus is going to drink the cup. Jesus is going to drain the dregs. When we read the words, read it again. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The possibility of another option other than cross, the cross can't be the meaning. An alternate salvation can't be possible. Almost certainly it means that Jesus could have walked away. Almost certainly it means that Jesus has a choice. Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. That's John 10 verses 17 and 18. Jesus has every right to say, no, thank you. I'm going to let you be responsible for the decisions that you have made and the choices that you have made and the disobedience that you've encountered. But Jesus says, no. He's going to fulfill his father's will. John MacArthur rightly says, quote, the father sent the son to the cross, but he did not force him to go, unquote. And I think that that's exactly right. Jesus has a choice. Jesus has an option. Jesus is going to voluntarily, personally make the decision to be the satisfying solution to the problem of your sin. MacArthur maintains that Jesus is here asking if avoiding the cross is somehow possible within the redemptive plans and purposes of God. He wonders out loud before his father if there might be an alternate way to deliver men from their sin, but quickly dismisses it. And so how can we even begin to think about this? What can we even say? What can we pretend to know? Is Jesus truly being tested or tempted? The answer seems to be yes. Jesus was and is sinless. Jesus remains impeccable. That's a word that means not capable, unable to sin. Jesus is brought into a real conflict with temptation according to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 and think about what's happening whatever else is happening in in the midst of all of this information Jesus is not he will not rebel against his father's will he wants to do his father's will the sinless son of God will experience the suffering and the separation meant for you and meant for me. He will offer his soul as a sacrifice so that you won't 
need to offer your soul as a sacrifice. He will suffer for your sin so that you don't have to. He will be separated from God so that you don't have to. In verse 40, it says, Then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? The rebuke is directed toward Peter, but it's meant for all. The rebuke is mild in its context in which it occurs. Think about what's happening. Again, the point of the rebuke isn't to shame him. It isn't to shame the others. It isn't to remind them of just how weak and helpless and hopeless they are. I'm going to suggest to you it's meant to do exactly the opposite. It's meant to strengthen them and teach them about the supernatural resources that could be made available for those people who are willing to pray, especially when you're faced with something so horrible and terrible and difficult, how do we know this? Because of the very next sentence. Watch and pray, Jesus says, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The disciples were sleeping when they should have been praying in verse 40. And it makes perfect sense that they're sleeping. They're sleeping because they're overwhelmed. Remember, the day has started very, very early, and it is way past midnight, and they are overwhelmed and overloaded with the information that's been given to him. And so when Jesus says, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation, there's a reason to watch and pray, he says in verse 41, so that we don't fall into temptation. And what's interesting to me, the Greek verbs are in the present imperative with the idea of an ongoing action. It could literally be read, watch, keep watching, pray, Keep praying. This is the New American Standard translation. Keep watching and praying. The idea being we face constant temptation. Jesus warns, be ever vigilant. Be watchful. Be available. Pray. Why? Because temptation is going to come from many quarters. Where is it going to come from? We already know. It's going to come from the world. It's going to come from the flesh. It's going to come from the devil. It's going to come from so many different places. And when are we most vulnerable? Every moment we are asleep. Every moment we are in sorrow. Every moment we are facing what seems to be an overwhelming grief. When are we most vulnerable? When are we most capable? I think Jesus is going to remind us that we rarely, we rarely, we rarely resist temptation all by ourselves. We require assistance. This fierce spiritual independence that we 
take for ourselves, we very rarely are willing to concede that we need each other and we need each other's prayers and we need each other's supports. We want to pray. We, we, we need to pray, but we need God's resources. We want to pray in our spirit, but the flesh is weak. And remember here, when, when Jesus is saying the flesh, he means everything that you are apart from God and apart from Christ even what you think is the good things about you, the attractive things about you, the strong and commendable things about you. We need assistance. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the presence of our Father. We need the promises of his word. And guess what? Our flesh is weak. Our eyes get heavy. How is it possible that when we purpose in our heart to pray, the phone rings? You laugh because you know it. The text beeps. Why are our prayers interrupted? Why is it so difficult? I'm going to tell you why. Because it matters. Your prayers matter. They are important. And so it makes perfect sense to me that all hell will conspire to keep you off of your knees because there is power in prayer. There's profit in prayer. And Satan doesn't mind if you're watching TV. He doesn't care if you're surfing the net. He doesn't mind if you're listening to the radio or the podcast or you're reading some political thriller. All of this stuff isn't prayer. But someone once said, even the devil trembles when he sees the weakest saint on their knees. The moment that you literally, in humility and dependence, get down on your knees or on your face, the resources that you need to be able to go forward are made available to you. Dependent prayer, look what Jesus says, diffuses temptation. How do we pray? We watch and we pray. We stay on the alert. Sometimes we pray secretly in the quiet closet of personal communion. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. Remember, Jesus said, when you pray, go into your closet. But we're also given permission to pray, believing in the simplicity of faith in Mark eleven eighteen. We are given permission to pray by ourselves, with others. In verse 42, it says again a second time, he went away and prayed. The idea being he distances himself from Peter, James, and John saying, Oh my father, if this cup cannot pass from me or pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Mention is now made of a second prayer. We might think of this prayer as the Lord's prayer of repetition. And some of you might be thinking, I thought we were supposed to avoid repetition. James says, avoid vain repetition. Sometimes it's okay to pray more than once. Sometimes it's okay to pray more than twice. The prayer is almost word for word the same as the earlier prayer. In verse 43, it says, and he came and he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. Jesus finds his disciples asleep again. Pause. 
Do you think this is an unexpected discovery on the part of Jesus? Seriously. Do you think he's going, I'm so shocked and surprised you guys have all fallen asleep all over again. I'm going to suggest to you that the discovery isn't a surprise. It isn't unexpected. I'm also going to suggest to you, does it add to his sorrow? Does it complicate his grief? Does it add to his distress? And I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is yes. Jesus knows their weakness. We already know. Any of us who have been following along in the text, he's already predicted Judas' betrayal. He's already predicted their desertion. And the desertion begins here. And it begins now. We sometimes need people to watch and pray in those moments of, of greatest distress. Why? Remember, there's power in prayer. There's profit in study. There's power in prayer. When someone texts you or, or picks up the phone and says, will you please pray for me? I'm going through a hard time. I have a, a difficult problem. I'm facing a horrible situation. Look what it says in verse 44. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? This is the third mention that Jesus has prayed. Note what it says. Saying the same words words. Let this cup pass, nonetheless, not as I will, but as you will. Dependent prayer is persistent. It is humble. And look what else it is. Dependent prayer wants to do God's will, God's way. Jesus prays repeatedly. Prayers are sometimes persistent, definite, and in accordance with God's will in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, again, we're given the clues of what constitutes dependent prayer. It will be humble. It will be persistent. It will be definite. It will be in line with God's will. All of the anguish and all of the sorrow that Jesus is about to submit to is going to require that he do exactly what God wants him to do. This is surrender. And it's not a conditional surrender. It's an unconditional surrender. Luke's gospel again reminds us that God sent angels to comfort him and strengthen him. In Luke twenty-two forty-three, 43, it says, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Jesus won't run away from what God has called him to do. D.A. Carson has suggested that, that this verse be translated as a statement of fact rather than as a question, where it says in verse 43, or excuse me, in verse 45, are you still sleeping and resting? Is it a question or is it a statement? The word translated still is an adverb, loipon. It doesn't naturally or necessarily mean Still or meanwhile, it points to the future. It could very well be translated, 
sleep now. Take your rest. It's interesting to me, Luke's gospel gives us a tiny, tiny hint in Luke twenty two forty five. It says, when he rose up from prayer and come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow, depression, grief, anguish. It makes perfect sense. That when you're overcome and you're overwhelmed, that sleep becomes a welcome remedy to this horrible depression. It's interesting to me that the disciples slept while Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, verse 28 through 32. Now they're sleeping during the greatest spiritual conflict in all of human history. I don't think it's fair to say that they were oblivious to the agony or the need of the master. But his warnings about struggle and his warnings about temptation and his warnings about vigilance were ignored. And it makes perfect sense to me that sometimes even after we've been warned, even after we've been told that there's going to be a struggle, even after we've been told that there's going to be temptation, even after prayers are invited, sometimes they're ignored, we're sometimes encouraged to seek God's strength and protection, and then we fall asleep. We might be tempted to chastise the disciples and rebuke them from the comfort of our chair or pew or wherever it is we happen to be. It's after midnight. The day began early. It's finished late. They've had a meal. They've walked a mile. They're limited. They're confused. We have every reason to believe Dr. Luke's assessment. He found them sleeping from sorrow. We're all capable of allowing frustrating or confusing or depressing circumstances to keep us from watching and praying. But Jesus is inviting us to do things differently. To do things differently when we are in difficult circumstances. The disciples, remember, didn't fully believe or want to believe that Jesus was about to die. He repeatedly told them about the suffering. He repeatedly told them about the betrayal. He repeatedly told them about desertion and death. And you would think that that would be sufficient reason to stay awake, to stay alert, to pray for strength, to pray for courage, to pray for commitment. The predicted desertion begins. There was a sad song from the 70s that reminded me of this passage. Because I need you more than I needed before and now where will I find comfort God knows because you left me just when I needed you most you left me just when I needed you most is it possible that Jesus really 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 wanted his friends to be with him
I think that the answer is yes. Did he want their comfort? Did he want their strength? Did he want their prayers? Did he want their support? I think that the answer is yes. By the way, nowhere in the passage have I been able to find the answer to did they ever pray? Did they ever pray? But Jesus prayed. And look what it says in verse 45. Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of the sinners. The time has come. Jesus is betrayed into the hands of evil men. Jesus has been strengthened. Listen carefully. Jesus has been strengthened by his Father. Jesus has been strengthened knowing God's will. Jesus has been strengthened even by angels. The time for strength has passed for the disciples. Jesus has prayed in agony, but he's going to face the betrayer with poise and strength. While the friends of Jesus slept, the enemies of Jesus planned his capture, his arrest, his death. And of course, that gives us yet another principle. My friend John Corson writes, there are meetings in hell to cause havoc in your family, in your ministry, in your occupation, in your marriage. While the disciples were snoozing, Jesus' enemies were awake, plotting, planning, preparing to do him in. Keep that in mind the next time you opt for sleep over prayer. Verse 46, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus prays in dependence, in humility, specifically according to God's will. And then he gets up. The source of the king's strength isn't simply in his supplication. It's in his submission. He's going to do what God wants him to do. When are we most likely to pray? (laughs) When we feel like we don't have any other choice. Have you ever said... Lord, I've exhausted all my alternatives. I guess it's time to pray. When I was reading this, I thought of this story. It said, when her husband Edmund Gravely died at the controls of his small plane while on way to Statesboro, Georgia from the Rocky Mount Wilson Airport, North Carolina. His wife Janice kept the plane aloft for two hours until it ran out of fuel. During this time, she sang hymns and prayed for help. As the plane crossed the South Carolina, North Carolina border, she radioed for help. Help! Help! Won't someone help me? My pilot is unconscious. Won't somebody help me? Authorities who picked up her distress signal weren't able to reach her by radio during the flight because she kept switching the channels. Mrs. Gravely finally made a rough landing and crawled for 45 minutes to a farmhouse for help. How often people cry out to God for help and then switch the channels before God's message comes through. They turn to other sources for help. They look for human help. 
when you cry out to God for intervention, make every effort not to switch the channels. There are lots of things that hinder prayer. Fatigue, unconfessed sin, insincerity, unbelief, satanic activity. But there's a little acrostic I want to share with you when we close. P, plead the name of Jesus. That's John 14. R, regard the word of Jesus, Hebrews 10, 19. A, abide in the person of Jesus. Y, yield to the will of God. E, expect the fulfillment of the promise of God in Christ. R, remember that sometimes there are conditions attached to the promise. I think of 2 Corinthians 7, 11. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is, abandon the things that make prayer not possible. P-R-A-Y-E-R. In this passage, agony will give way to a rest. That's what we're going to find later on in this chapter. But for the next two weeks... Even though some of you are going to suffer some pain and some sorrow and some difficulty and some setback, I'm going to encourage you to pray. I'm going to encourage you to pray intentionally, in humility, persistently, specifically for God's will, for your life, for your family. For your church. And then in the next two weeks, we're going to have some fun and some laughs. The heaviness of the Garden of Gethsemane is going to give way to the joy that comes in knowing that a Savior has come into the world. I can't wait to share with you a little bit about the Chronicles of Christmas. Let me pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, I pray for every man and every woman within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would listen carefully to the words of Jesus, that we would be willing to abide in the person of Jesus, and that we would yield to the will of God, that like our Savior, we could say, Lord, Not my will, but thy will be done. Lord, we know it's your will for us to love you, to serve you, to submit to you, to obey you. But most of all, Lord, it's your will that we place our complete confidence in the sacrifice of Jesus. There's a reason why he steered into that cup and he saw my sin. his breath away he saw my just punishment and it was overwhelming Lord I pray that we as men and women who know you and love you 
cultivate that sense of profound gratitude over the grace that's been given to us because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And that we would elect to embrace all that Jesus has for us. That we would confess our sin, that we would turn from our sin, that we would turn to the Savior and trust Him completely for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.